you can see, we're beginning a uh, new series on the Old Testament character named Samson. I don't know what your level of familiarity with Samson is. Maybe you grew up hearing about him in Sunday school. Maybe you're just vaguely familiar with his name. Maybe you've never heard of Samson at all. But I suspect that you're going to be shocked by what you learn about Samson in this series. And I think you're even going to be shocked that Samson's story is even included in the Bible at all. I think maybe the best way to describe Samson and who he is and what his life was about was with a phrase that Winston Churchill used to describe Russia in 1939, that Samson is a riddle wrapped up in a mystery inside of an enigma. On the one hand, full of potential, good-looking, a superb start to his life, hand-picked by God to lead a revolt against Israel's enemies, flashes of genius, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, an emotionally immature, mostly shallow-minded playboy whose life resembles a tawdry soap opera. And then, on the third hand, which I don't even have, you should also know that he is hailed in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, as an example of faith. What do you make of that? Well, he's a riddle wrapped up in a mystery inside of an enigma. If you like your heroes squeaky clean, you're going to be disappointed by Samson. If you like postmodern anti-heroes, you're going to be disappointed by Samson. If you like stories about villains, you're going to be disappointed about Samson too, which is a great way to start a new series on Samson, huh? To say you'll all be disappointed by Samson in one way or another. But I promise you that you will all be fascinated by Samson. Why? Well, say it with me. Because he is a riddle wrapped up in a mystery inside of an enigma. The wild and crazy story of Samson's life is found in four chapters in the Old Testament book of Judges. I'd like to ask you if you would to turn with me there to the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 13. Uh, Judges is sandwiched in between the books of Joshua and Ruth. If you have an old school copy of the Bible like I do up here, uh, you can follow along. Uh, that will help you find Judges chapter uh, 13. Just a word here that the book of Judges gets its name from a period of time in Israel's political history uh, in which they were what's called a, a, a political theocracy. In other words, uh, they were ruled over by God himself. He was their king. They did not have a human king, a human political leader. However, from time to time, God would raise up someone who would lead his people and rally them against their enemies. These people were called judges, but they weren't judges in the way that you and I think of judges. Uh, think more like Mel Gibson in Braveheart and less Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? So like they were military leaders, political leaders, all right? They were liberators from surrounding nations. Samson is the last judge in Israel, and man, oh man, I just want to tell you that the judges end with a bang with this guy, Samson. Here's what I want to do today as we launch into the series. I want to spend some time just mining the spiritual context into which Samson was born. Because I think there's some profound implications for that in our own lives. I want to start with verse 1 of Judges chapter uh, 13. Let's read there. Again, and just hold that word again because I'll explain that in just a moment. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of Philistines for 40 years. Now, this word again, 
the book of Judges tells a very sad story about this very specific time in Israel's history. Understand that Israel was birthed as a nation by God himself. Like they didn't already exist and then he named them. He created a nation. He formed the nation of Israel through supernatural intervention into human affairs. And it was to be a great nation. Like they were chosen by God to be the nation through whom he would rescue the world from sin and despair. They were given this great uh, and very unique law to live by. A beautiful law that was the envy of all of the surrounding neighbors. Worship God and love your neighbors. That was the essence of this law. It was unheard of. And if they did that, they would live in, in the word was shalom, peace and prosperity and blessing and unity. But Israel constantly chose to rebel against God. And instead of worshiping this God who called them to love him and to love people, they would worship the bloodthirsty pagan idols of the nations around them. And the book of Judges records this never worked out well for Israel. But Israel never seemed to learn. And in fact, they were trapped in a repeated cycle of rebellion that spiraled downward over time. Now, here's what that cycle looked like. And we're going to put this graphic up on the screen for you. And uh, I'm going to tell you that the reason it looks, it's black and white, the reason it's simple, the reason it's not complex, the reason it's not beautiful is because I made this myself. I'm embarrassed by the amount of time it took me to make this, but here you go. All right? Here's how it go. Here's the cycle. Israel would rebel. Uh, they'd rebel against God. They would worship the pagan gods of surrounding nations. Then God would discipline them by allowing one of the surrounding nations, to rule over them. Inevitably, that would prove to be terrible. And the people of Israel would cry out to God in repentance. And then in response to their repentance, God in his grace and mercy would raise up a judge who would deliver them from their oppressors. And for a time, they would experience peace and shalom until the cycle started up all over again. And that's what the book of Judges is about, really. This cycle that keeps repeating itself over and over and over and over throughout the book. Now, be careful. Be careful. Because I think it would be very easy for us to think, to be very hard on Israel and to think, well, why didn't these people learn? But I want to tell you that this cycle that they're in, that they were in, that repeats over and over, is not something that's foreign to you because you get stuck in a very similar cycle of behavior, even if we wouldn't label it with all the same words, this happens to you. For instance, those of you who are relatively newly married. I'm going to put up a graphic. I want to see if you recognize this cycle. Here it is. Things are going along. They go along fine. Then you have an argument. You get mad at each other about it for a while. There's silence. No communion. Uh, excuse me, no communication, no intimacy, no sex. And then someone, some, one of you in the marriage says, this is stupid. Why are we doing that? I'm so sorry. Let's not keep fighting. And then you have makeup sex and everything is right with the world. Until, until what? Until the argument comes back again and you do the cycle all over again. Do you recognize the cycle? It's really the same cycle that Israel repeated again and again in the book of Judges. Now, those of you who aren't married, you don't have to be married to experience this. Let's say you had a really bad day. You feel sad. You feel unappreciated. You feel angry. You feel lonely. Let's put up the next graphic. See if you recognize this. <laughs> I'm just spitballing here now, but you go out and buy a gallon of, say, chocolate ice cream. 
you stuff yourself with a gallon of it as you eat your emotions. The next day you wake up and you're like, yuck, why did I do that? You feel terrible about it. And so you say, never again. And you go work out. You go out on a diet. You eat clean. All is great. You post your workouts on social media. You're feeling well. And then your boss hollers at you. And your boyfriend or your girlfriend breaks up with you. And you go back to the store and you buy the gallon of chocolate ice cream and you repeat the cycle all over again. Judges, you see, isn't just the story of Israel. It's the story of you and me. And it's the story of our tendency to get trapped in cycles of behavior that we can't seem to get out of. This is what human beings do, you see. We're sinners. And sin always traps us in a cycle of despair that we can't get out of. And left to ourselves, there would be no hope for us individually or for the human race collectively. Because what do we know about cycles like the ones that we just saw? Over time, the behavior that starts the cycle calcifies, and then it intensifies, and then we become trapped by it, defeated by it. Why have makeup sex? We're just going to fight about this again. Why eat clean and work out? I'm just going to give in to the ice cream again next time something happens and makes me feel sad or angry or lonely. Why do it? You get hopeless over time, more calloused by whatever it is, more tolerant of it. And you see, that's where Israel is between verse 1 of chapter 13 and what comes next in verse 2. Let's read from verse 2. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you're barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now, see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, we'll come back uh, in the weeks ahead and explain some of the details here. But for now, I just want you to notice, and I think this is very important, that there's something missing between verse 1 and this account of Samson's birth. Did you notice it? Let's put the cycle back up on the screen, and let's see if you can find what's missing. Verse 1 says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What is that on our cycle? Okay, good. You're right. That's rebellion. So, verse 1 says, the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. What's that? That's the discipline. But then, did you notice something? In verse 2, we jump right to the birth of the deliverer that God is providing. What's missing in the cycle? What's missing? Repentance is missing. In every other case in the book of Judges, that cycle holds true to form, but not in this case. With the last judge in Israel, there's no repentance. Why? Well, if you were to read the book of Judges, you would find that the other nations that God used to discipline Israel were very cruel and oppressive to the people of Israel. They treated the people of Israel horribly, made them into slaves, 
and captives. And because they were so cruel, the people of Israel would rise up and they would say, in essence, this is stupid. Yuck. Never again. And they would repent. But the Philistines took a different tactic. Historians tell us that the Philistines weren't really that cruel. Rather than torturing the people of Israel and making them slaves, their tactic was to overthrow Israel by assimilation. They were absorbing Israel into their nation. They were intermingling. They were intermarrying. They were interpenetrating. They were tying them in economically. And so the people of Israel were slowly but surely being absorbed into the culture, and they were fine with it. And so between verses 1 and verse 2, there's no repentance at all. Now, if the relevance of that to your life escapes you, let me draw it out for you. I want you to think with me for just a moment about a line of dominoes, okay? A line, a line of dominoes. We'll put them up on the screen. What happens when you flip one domino, when you tip one domino? What happens? The others fall, right? Had Israel been absorbed into the Philistine culture, they would have lost their own unique culture. And within a generation or two, there would have been no Israel. Now, that's a crisis because God had promised that he would send a Messiah through the Jewish people. So here we go, dominoes. No Jewish nation, that's one domino that falls. The next domino to fall, no Jesus. No Jewish Messiah. Third domino to fall, no salvation for you. Fourth domino to fall, no city church. We aren't even here this morning. See, the hope of the world, your hope, my hope, the hope of the world is teetering here between verses 1 and 2 because the Jewish people are about to be assimilated into Philistine culture and they don't even care. Make a note of this somewhere. For God so loved the world that he sent Samson. For God so loved the world that he sent Samson, that's the message of the birth of Samson. God, out of covenant faithfulness to his promise, would not abandon his creation to sin and let it descend into mutual destruction and oblivion. And so despite Israel's callousness and lack of repentance, God did for Israel what Israel was incapable of doing for themselves. He sent them a deliverer. Now let me ask you something. Does that sound familiar to you? When you read this account of the birth of Samson, does it remind you of anything? Like, let's add it up here. A woman told by an angel that through supernatural means, she will become pregnant with a firstborn son who will be a deliverer, a savior, you could say. Sound familiar? Miracle birth, angel of God, firstborn son, deliverer of Israel. Does that remind you of anyone? Yeah. It's almost as if we're reading the nativity story in Luke chapter 1 of Jesus' birth. And we're meant to make this connection here. God is signaling to us that there's a connection between Samson and Jesus. I mean, their lives would look very different for sure. But in both, God was intervening in human history. And he was doing it, listen to me now, he was doing it for your salvation. C.S. Lewis uh, once uh, wrote a book called Surprised by Joy. It was about his own journey to faith. And 
he observed at one point in his own journey to faith, as he was reading the Bible, he observed this. He said, the Bible placed at the center what seemed to me a transcendental interferer. Do you know what he means by that, a transcendental interferer? What he means is that God is so faithful to his promise that he will barge at various times into human history. He will barge uninvited into human history to rescue his people. And that's what he does here. For God so loved the world that he sent Samson. Now, this has a couple of tremendous implications for your life. Uh, implications that can bring enormous peace to your soul. Here's the first one. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this fact that God intervenes into human history because he so loves the world that he sends Samson, what that means is that your relationship with God does not now and will not ever depend upon you. Do you understand this? Your relationship with God does not now and will not ever depend upon, upon you. Long before you ever drew your first breath, long before your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents ever drew their first breath, long before you ever came to believe in Christ, long before Jesus was born, in about the year 1118 B.C., the great transcendental interferer sent Samson to deliver Israel so that his plan to save you through Jesus Christ would not be thwarted by Israel's human rebellion. Now, what did you do? In all, what were you doing in 1118 BC? What were you doing? What did you do in all of that? Well, you didn't do anything. You weren't even alive. The New Testament deliberately chooses a word to explain what God has done all of the work that God has done for your salvation, even the work that he was doing here in Israel in 1118 B.C. through Samson. And the, work, the, the word that the New Testament chooses is the word gospel. It's the Greek word euangelion. And what's fascinating about this word gospel is that it wasn't a religious term at all. See, what would happen is that the Roman Empire... Uh, when they conquered some nation, there were all of these remote outposts of the empire. They didn't have CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or the Roman Empire News or whatever. So they would send, the Roman emperor would send a messenger out into these remote corners of the empire to tell them the good news of Rome's recent conquest. And the word that best described, the word that described uh, what this messenger was doing was this Greek word, euangelion. First part of the word is ou, which means joy in Greek. And the last part of the word, angelos, uh, meant messenger. So the word gospel meant news. News that brings great joy. Now, the key concept here is news. Let me ask you something. Where do you get your news from? I don't know. Where do you, where, wherever you watch it, whatever, whatever the platform is that you get your news on, whatever station, whatever, you know, whatever place you read it, let me ask you something. When you get the news, what did you do to make that news? What did you do? You did nothing. Someone else did something. 
that you're hearing about or reading. You didn't do anything. You just heard it. The reason that the authors of the New Testament chose this word gospel was to convey what we see here with Samson and throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament with Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection. What they're trying to convey is that Christianity is different than any other religion in the world in that Christianity is the joyful news of what God has done to accomplish your salvation through the person of Jesus Christ in history. God has done it, you see. That's the news. God promised to raise up a Messiah through Israel. God formed the nation of Israel. God intervened in Israel's history, even though they didn't deserve it, to send Samson to rescue them so that God could one day fulfill his promise to send a Messiah through Israel in the person of Jesus who would die on a cross to rescue you. You see, this is all the story of what God has done. What did you do? Nothing. The gospel is the story not of your obedience. but The gospel is the story of how God has been working for your salvation throughout all of human history because that is what he promised to do. So, here's where that brings peace. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, your relationship with him does not now, nor will it ever, depend upon you. If you find yourself thinking that God loves you because of how good you are or because of something that you've done, or if you find yourself here this morning thinking that God doesn't love you anymore because of how bad you've been, you have missed the point. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for you in human history. For God so loved the world that he sent, long before you were ever even alive, Samson. There's another implication of this for your life, though. And I think this one, is, I think this one can bring enormous peace to your soul as well. And I'm going to just put it this way. God can write straight with crooked pencils. God can write straight with crooked pencils. And you're going to see this in Samson's life in the weeks ahead. He's a crooked pencil, believe me. But you can see it even in Israel's lack of repentance in verse 1 and in God's announcement of Samson's birth in verse 2. God can write straight with crooked pencils. Uh, in my capacity, you know, I, you can probably imagine, I meet an awful lot of people who are trying to figure out God's will for their life, and some are paralyzed by that. I mean, like, they can't make a decision. They think that everything about their future depends upon their decision. What if I make the wrong decision? If I make the wrong decision, if I do the wrong, will I be on God's plan B for my life? If we learn anything from this story of God's intervention with the birth of Samson, it's that God is infinitely powerful enough, infinitely wise enough, sovereign over everything that he can use even your rebellious choices, your stupid choices, your failures, your sin to accomplish his plan for your life. You are never on plan B, you see. You are always on God's plan A for your life because you can never thwart his will for your life Rest assured of that. God writes straight 
with crooked pencils. If it were up to Israel, a crooked pencil, if there ever was one, they would have long ago been assimilated into Philistine culture, and you and I would be sitting here today with no hope. Actually, we wouldn't even be sitting here today. Yet God intervened, and he rescued Israel. He even used Israel's rebellion to convey the depth of his love for you. You cannot thwart God's plan for your life. You can also rest assured that no one else can thwart God's plan for your life. No one else's bad decisions, no one else's hurtful actions, no one else can thwart God's will for your life. Not Israel's rebellion. That couldn't thwart God's plan for your life. Not your boss, not your ex, not your parents. No one. Because God can write straight with crooked pencils. I follow someone on uh, Twitter uh, who wrote about how her grandmother came to faith uh, in Christ. And when you hear her grandmother's upbringing, I promise you, you won't be able to predict the outcome. I want you to listen. She said, and this is brief uh, because it's, it's obviously limited by Twitter's character count. But listen to this. She said, my grandmother was raised and then abandoned by her alcoholic mother who brought strange men home, leading to my grandmother being sexually assaulted. But she heard the gospel from a friend when she was a teenager, and then she jumps to the end of the story. She says, the majority of my grandmother's descendants are now believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me ask you something. Wouldn't you think an alcoholic mother being abandoned, being sexually assaulted, wouldn't you think that that would thwart God's plan for generations to come? No, because God can write straight with crooked pencils. What can you or anyone else do to screw up God's plan for your life? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You will never be on plan B. Whatever God wants for your life, he will bring it about no matter what you do, no matter what anyone else does. That doesn't mean that there won't be consequences sometimes to your behavior or to someone else's behavior. That doesn't mean that at all. It just means that it can't thwart God's plan for your life. And you can see this, can't you, in the cross of Jesus Christ. God, the great transcendental interferer, did for you on the cross what you could never do for yourself. He actually, think about this, think about writing straight with crooked pencils. He took the very rebellion of humanity and used that rebellion as the means to pay the price for the very sins and rebellion that put Christ on the cross in the first place. And through that, liberated us from the hopeless cycle of rebellion that we were once in. That's writing straight with a crooked pencil. God writes straight with crooked pencils like you, like me, like Israel, and everyone else in the world. And nothing that you can do can thwart God's will for your life. And nothing anyone else can do can thwart God's will for your life. Nothing. And I'm going to just warn you about something here. Let me just say that I'm going to read to you Uh, I'm going to tell you a a true story from a book I read many years ago about God's sovereignty. It's called, uh, the book was called The Grand Weaver by uh, Ravi Zacharias. Some of you may be familiar with Ravi Zacharias. Uh, Before I tell you the story, though, I need to just 
again, I need to warn you that here's the thing. I am not a fan of crying pastors. I'm not a fan. I'm not a crier. I don't like pastors who cry from the stage. Maybe you do. That's fine. I'm just not a fan of that. But I have to warn you that every single time that I have gone over this story that I'm going to tell you in preparing this sermon, I have choked up. My wife wasn't even sure if I should tell it because I can't get through it without choking up. So I'm going to try to get through it, but fair warning here. Uh, I may get choked up. If I get choked up, you're welcome to laugh, whatever you want to do. But uh, I'm going to give it a shot. Here we go. In 1985, a man by the name of Arthur Fine wrote a story uh, some of you will remember the magazine. He wrote it in. It was, the, it was uh, the old Reader's Digest. Some of you may be familiar with that. And he wrote this story. It's about finding a wallet. He found a wallet on the street with just $3 and a crumpled up letter in it. And the letter was dated 60 years earlier. And this letter, the text of the letter, uh, the gist of it was that it ended a romance because of uh, the girl's parents' uh, demands. The girl's parents wouldn't let her date this guy, and it was addressed, Dear Michael, and then the last line, you know, wrote, the whole letter was there, and then the last line said, I will always love you, Michael, and it was signed, yours, Hannah. Well, Hannah's address was still legible on the letter. Those of you who have never written a letter might not know, but you used to write your letter on the, on your address on the, on the actual letter. So Arthur Fine used this address to track down Hannah, and all of those years later, he finds her, and she's living in a nursing home. So Fine goes to the nursing home, and, and he met him. And he showed her the letter, and he asked her if she was the one who had written it. And she, she said, yes. She said, I sent this letter to Michael because my parents wouldn't let us see each other anymore. Michael Goldstein was his name. And she said, if you find him, tell him that I think of him often and never did marry anyone because no one matched up to him. She said that brushing tears from her eyes. As Mr. Fine was leaving the nursing home, the security guard at the door asked about his visit, and Mr. Fine told him the story, and he said, at least I was able to get the last name from her, the guy who owns the wallet. His name is Michael Goldstein. Goldstein, replied the security guard. There's a Michael Goldstein who lives here on the eighth floor. Mr. Fine turned around and he went back inside to the eighth floor asking for Michael Goldstein. He was directed to an elderly gentleman. And he asked the man, Have you, did, you, did you lose your wallet? Oh, yes, he answered. I, I lost it when I was out for a walk the other day. Fine told him that he had found his wallet and, and he told him that he'd read the letter in it. And he told Michael Goldstein that he knew where Hannah was. And Michael grew pale. Could you tell me where she is? I'd love to call her. When that letter came to me, my life ended. I've never gotten married. I never stopped loving her. Come with me, said Mr. Fine. He took Michael by the elbow and down to the third floor. And he said, Hannah, I think you know this man. This is Michael. After studying each other for a moment, they both realized that they were looking at their long-lost love. The two embraced, and they held on to each other for as long as they could stay steady on their feet, 
And then they sat down holding hands, and between their tears, they filled in the story of the long years that had passed. Eventually, Mr. Fine felt like he was intruding on a sacred moment, so he said goodbye, and he slipped away to leave the two alone to enjoy their reunion. So here we go. Three weeks later, Mr. Fine received an invitation to attend the wedding of Hannah, 76 years old, to Michael, 78 years old. Ravi Zacharias ends this story with this line. The work of a sovereign God leaves us overwhelmed at the way he weaves his threads. Which is just another way of saying, God rides straight with crooked pencils. No one can thwart God's will for your life. Not you. Not anyone else. For God so loved the world that he sent Samson when Israel didn't deserve it, when Israel wasn't repentant, when Israel was being assimilated into the Philistine culture and they didn't care. God so loved the world that he sent Samson for you. In 1118 B.C., God was thinking about you. Would you bow your heads with me? It is overwhelming, Lord, the way that you weave the threads of your plan for our lives together. Everything else in the world tells us that everything that we become depends upon us. Every other religion tells us that our salvation is based upon us, upon our obedience, our goodness, whatever. You tell us, though. You tell us that our relationship with you isn't based upon us and never will be. Everything else in this culture tells us that what we will become in our lives is dependent upon our good decision-making. And yet you tell us through the life of Samson that your will for our lives will be worked out despite our decision-making. This is overwhelming to us. But Lord Jesus Christ, would you give us Would you give us a peace this morning, a peace that invades our souls, a peace that can only come from you. Thank you so much that you can write straight with crooked pencils like us and that your death on the cross is an illustration, a perfect illustration of that. We put you there. And yet that's how you paid for our sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we worship today. Thank you. Thank you.